The church at Ross Bridge is a bridge to belonging, believing, and becoming in Jesus Christ. We hope you enjoyed this message and visit our website at rossbridge.church. Shalom, church. It is so good to be back with you. This time last Sunday, Israel time, I was standing at the Western Wall. It's the holiest site for Orthodox Jews now in the 21st century. This is the foundation of the first century temple. And Orthodox Jews go there to pray on a daily basis. And people have a habit of taking small prayer strips and placing them in the mortar and crevices of the wall. We carried many of your prayers there. And what a holy uh, privilege it was to be able to stand there and pray. I prayed for my wife and my children. But then I prayed for the church at Ross Bridge um, in an exciting time in the life of our church in the coming year. And it was just a great time to be with you in spirit that most of you were asleep at the time of that prayer. Um, So let's return to prayer again. God, may the meditations of our hearts, may the words of my mouth be pleasing to you because you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Some of you need to hear this today. Wrestling with doubts or asking difficult questions about faith It's not a sin. Some people wrestle with the unmerited suffering of innocent people. When someone you know, or even someone you observe, without any cause or fault of their own, has dealt a great deal of suffering, you wonder how that could be okay if there's a good God in the world. Other people are just looking for objective, scientific verification of their faith claims, and they can't quite seem to find what they're looking for, and so there's always a little bit of a gap even if they want to believe completely. Others struggle with a perceived error or inconsistency in Christian scriptures or in Christian doctrine. If one of those perspectives that I just described serves as a hindrance to your faith, I want you to know that I think the Christian faith is big enough and God is big enough to handle those questions and to not abandon you in your season of wrestling. And in fact, If you dig through Scripture, you find that Scripture actually anticipates these kinds of hesitations and hindrances. And so today, I'd like to acknowledge one that I think some of you might have. If you don't today, you perhaps know somebody who does or you will at some point in the future. And I'm going to put it this way. If Christianity claims that God is the ultimate reality and the source of all goodness, how do we explain goodness in the world outside of the Christian faith. So the first premise there is affirmed in James chapter 1. Every good gift, every perfect gift comes from above. These gifts come down from the Father, the creator of the heavenly lights, in whose character there is no change at all. So if every good thing comes from the ultimate source of reality, God, how do we explain kindness, generosity, acts of compassion, from people who don't profess the truth of the Christian faith? What do we do with all the virtuous people who belong to other faith traditions or maybe people who are irreligious completely? They're indifferent to religion. And here's another way of compounding this by reversing it. If you see the good by those who are not Christians and you wonder if all good comes from God, but they're not part of God's family in a formal way, why is it that they're doing good things? You can kind of flip it and say... How do I make sense of observing a person who claims to be a Christian, who is unkind, 
who is indifferent to suffering rather than compassionate, and who might be stingy and self-centered rather than generous. So I see these who are claiming to be followers of Jesus who fail in these areas, and people who aren't claiming to be followers of Jesus who are excelling more so than that person. Let me give you an example. Lots of examples of ways that Christians fall short in the world, but just in the past week, we visited our group of 19 in the Holy Land, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Sepulchre is a mouthful. It's just a Greek word that means tomb. And this is, in the old city of Jerusalem, this structure is believed to be, going back to around the year 325, 330, to be the most reasonable location for the death of Jesus on Golgotha and just about 50 yards away inside the church, the resurrection of Jesus from the tomb. Now, we don't have any kind of carbon dating evidence to confirm that, but most Christians for across 17 centuries have believed and at least gone there to honor that historical reality in our faith. Now, this church is huge. And it's not built like a typical church. It has a lot of little chapels and caverns and walkways and even different tunnels and things. And it's shared by six different Christian denominations. Roman Catholic, Greek Orthodox, Armenian Christians, Ethiopian Orthodox, Coptics, and Syriac Orthodox Christians. Some of, them may be, some of those may even be new to you. Now, they share this building, but they don't do it very well. This is a picture of an Armenian monk who is being held back by Israeli police that were summoned to help deal with a fistfight dispute between monks and devout priests of different traditions within the church. This is just one instance of about five that's happened over the last 15 years. And I want to show you, after this picture, the doors to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. You see on the left-hand side, there used to be two entrances. They've stoned enclosed one with stone. These doors are about 14 feet tall. They're massive. They're ancient, um, at least dating back to the early 16th century. And here's a picture of the keys that have to open the door. There's an upper lock that requires you to get on a ladder, and then a lower lock, which is at kind of waist level, two different keys. Those keys are entrusted to a family that arrives every morning to unlock the church and every evening to lock the church, and they're Muslims. And they've had this responsibility for at least five centuries. They have a contract, a paper contract, that goes back to the 1500s. Because the Christians can't be trusted to get along enough to have the keys to their own building. It's embarrassing. It's ridiculous. It sounds like my family. If the presence of goodness in the world outside of the Christian faith parallels with the sometimes lack of goodness within the Christian faith, if that's a hindrance to you, I want to say to you, the Bible offers a response. Now, first of all, let's, let's address those in reverse order. When you see Christians that fall short of the loving example of Jesus Christ in the world, let me refer you to 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-7. through by His divine power, the Lord has given us everything we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of the One who has called us by His own honor and glory. Through His honor and glory, He has given us His precious and wonderful promises that you may share the divine nature and escape from the world's immorality that sinful craving produces. This is why you must make every effort to add moral excellence to your faith and to moral excellence, excellence knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, 
and to self-control endurance, and to endurance godliness, and to godliness affection, and to affection for others love. I hope that you'll hear that God through Christ has made it possible for us to be a part of God's family and God is sharing the divine nature with us. But if you go back that one slide to those last few verses, in verse 5 it says, this is why you must make every effort. Placing our faith in Christ, being baptized in His name, and becoming a part of His family, the church, are all works of God by grace, not our effort. But if Christians are going to grow into Christ's likeness, God will not overwhelm our will. We have to cooperate with the work of the Spirit. And that doesn't happen overnight. And so whenever you see a Christian who is falling embarrassingly short of the standard of Jesus Christ, recognize they might be forgiven, but God's sanctifying work of making them like Christ is going to take a while. In fact, just this morning, I observed horrendous, just a horrendous spectacle of the Christian faith as compared to Jesus when at 6 a.m. I looked in the bathroom mirror. (laughs) Think about how how far your life falls short of the standard of Christ. Just know that the redeeming, sanctifying work of God's grace is not done. Christians are still human beings. But the bigger question, the prior question, I believe that Paul addresses it rather clearly in the book of Acts in chapter 17. This is a map of the first century. And a lot of times we're looking at maps of Israel when we're talking about the Scriptures. But when we move into the book of Acts and we start seeing the kind of expansion of the Christian faith as it grows, we move into the broader Mediterranean world. And so in the bottom left-hand corner, you see Jerusalem, which is there in Israel. And then a lot of the uh, disciples began to share, and Paul, especially in his missionary journeys, up through Galatia, which is modern-day Turkey. And then over where there's a red star, in Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul, on a second missionary journey, is staying in the city of Athens. Athens agrees. This is three and a half centuries, roughly, after Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. Alexander the Great, right after them, had conquered most of the known world. This is the center, the pinnacle of human education and philosophical achievement with all of the beauty of its arches in the first century. And Paul stops there at a place called the Areopagus. This is a picture of the Areopagus. It's on the northern side of the city of Athens. And it's a place where the philosophical professionals of the, of the town would gather to discuss virtue and philosophy, what is true, what is real. And Paul visits there. Paul, in Acts chapter 17, verse 16, says, While Paul waited for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed to find that the city was flooded with idols. He began to interact with the Jews and Gentile God-worshippers in the synagogue. He also addressed whoever happened to be in the marketplace each day. Certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers engaged him in discussion too. Some said, what an amateur. What's he trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods. They said this because he was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So, here in Acts, Luke records that there are two primary groups or schools of thought that are represented at the Areopagus, Epicureans and Stoics. And if you don't remember, freshman from college, introduction to philosophy, Paul is speaking to these two groups. And Stoics were people who practiced a worldview which emphasized the objective application of reason and logic upon the observation of the natural world. 
That doesn't sound that different than the way many of us think. We want our faith to make sense rationally to us. And they believed that once you discovered what was rational and logical based upon the observation of the natural world, you could deny yourself its pleasures and some difficulties because you were achieving a higher way of living based on this reason and logic. The other side of that was the Epicureans who said, eat, drink, and to marry for to marry, be merry, for tomorrow we may die. I'll have a second glass of wine. The Epicureans said, look, the purpose of life is to experience pleasure. And that's to the exclusion of discomfort and pain. That's the goal of a well-ordered life is to have fun while you're here. Two very different worldviews. And Paul, like he's playing a game of chess, beautifully addresses some of their philosophical premises when he says this. Paul stood up in the middle of the council on Mars Hill and said, People of Athens, I see that you are religious in every way. As I was walking through town and carefully observing your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. What you worship as unknown, I now proclaim to you. God who made the world and everything in it is Lord of heaven and earth. He doesn't live in temples made with human hands, nor is God served by human hands as though He needed something, since He is the one who gives life, breath, and everything else. From one person, God created every human nation to live on the whole earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their lands. God made the nations so that they would seek Him, perhaps even reach out to Him and find Him. In fact, God isn't far away from any of us. In God we live and move and exist. Some of your own poets said we are His offspring. Therefore, as God's offspring, we have no need to imagine that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone image made by human skill and thought. God overlooks ignorance of these things in times past, but now directs everyone everywhere to change their hearts and their lives. This is because God has set a day when He intends to judge the world justly by a man He has appointed. God has given proof of this to everyone by raising Him from the dead. When they heard about resurrection from the dead, some began to ridicule Paul. However, others heard about the resurrection from the dead. Others said, we'll hear from you about this again. At that, Paul left the council. Some people joined him and came to believe, including Dionysius, a member of the council on Mars Hill, and a woman named Damaris, and several others. There's a lot to unpack in this incredible narrative about Paul taking this first century gospel of Christ's resurrection into the intellectual center of the modern world in the first century and bringing challenge and hope to their criticism of what he's saying and to their pre-existing worldview. All I want to live up for the lift up to you from this significant section of Scripture is this. Paul is telling both the Stoics and the Epicureans that God has implanted within the very heart of human existence an unquenchable desire to know God and to do what is noble and good. That's why he points to that statue to the unknown God and says, let me tell you about the one that I'm going to tell you that represents and the unbelievable hope that death has been triumphed over through God's revealing through Jesus. What Paul is doing here is something that theologians call general revelation, meaning that it's available generally to all people. 
It's all the things we can learn and know generally about God from simply living in the natural world. It doesn't take reading a Bible. It doesn't take a parent or grandparent telling you the story. There is kind of woven into the fabric of the cosmos a reality that there's some being behind it all. Psalm 19 says, Heaven is declaring God's glory. The sky is proclaiming His handiwork. One day gushes the news to the next, and one night informs another what needs to be known. Of course, there's no speech, no words. Their voices can't be heard, but their sound extends throughout the world. Their words reach the ends of the earth. And the Apostle Paul takes that natural revelation of the natural created world and also applies general revelation to the human heart. In his letter to the church at Rome, he says, God's wrath is being revealed from heaven against all the ungodly behavior and the injustice of human beings who silence the truth with injustice. This is because what is known about God should be plain to them because God made it plain to them. Ever since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, God's eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen because they are understood through the things God has made. So humans are without excuse. If the psalm says that the natural world testifies to the existence of God, Paul says God has woven into the human heart a basic moral code for right and wrong. That's why, according to Psalm 19, you can observe the intricate design, balance, and beauty in the created world and understand there has to be some intelligent source to all of, all of it. But, Paul says, when you hear of an innocent person who is injured, sick, or killed, and you're moved with compassion even if you don't know that person, that's the imprint of God's justice on your heart. Paul would say, that feeling you get when you do something that you know is wrong, and you feel that searing kind of pain of guilt in your heart, that is the basic code of right and wrong that God has put in humanity. When there is a great injustice or unfairness in the world, and we become anger, angry with a righteous kind of anger, like the feeling that most all of us felt when we saw unprovoked and unjustly Russia just decide to try to invade and take over Ukraine and all the terrible suffering that has happened as a result of that. There's a basic sense that God's woven in the world and all those things come from God. And when a person, hear me, when a person from another faith tradition or has no tradition of faith at all sees a hungry person and decides to make sure that hungry person is fed just out of a sense of humanitarian compassion, I believe that that pleases God. That makes God happy to see human beings at a very basic level caring for one another, being good to one another, protecting one another. That's what we hear here in Romans 1. But according to the gospel story, that general revelation is incomplete. And that's why theologians talk also about special revelation. These are all the things we learn and know about God through the person of Jesus Christ and the scriptures that testify about Him. And so Paul will say to the church in Rome, 
later, and he says here in Acts 17, God has in the fullness of time been given a face. God has walked upon this earth and through His actions and His being, God has revealed perfectly the character of who our Creator is through Jesus Christ. You hear this echoed in Hebrews chapter 1. In the past, God spoke through the prophets to our ancestors in many times and many ways. In these final days, though He spoke to to us through a Son. God made His Son the heir of everything and created the world through Him. The Son is the light of God's glory and the imprint of God's being. He maintains everything with His powerful message. After He carried out the cleansing of people from their sins, He sat down at the right hand of the highest majesty. Friends, God uses general revelation in the world if people continue to search to create a hunger for special revelation that I believe as a Christian is only and uniquely fulfilled through Jesus Christ. Now, does that make me the judge of all persons who believe in other things or practice no faith at all? Of course not. Christians are not appointed to be judges about who's in, who's out, this person's a follower, this person's not, that what they're doing is okay with. I read just this past week, if God didn't send His own Son into the world to condemn the world, He probably didn't send Nathan to do it. Instead, friends, Christians are called to live with humility and place our focus not on the judgment of others, but upon faithful witness to the special revelation because only Jesus Christ has descended to identify with us in our weakness. He can sympathize with us in every way. He he alone has the power to forgive and to heal the human heart, which is in rebellion against God. And He's the only one who has conquered death through the resurrection. And I want you to hear me say, I believe, and I believe that the book of Revelation testifies to this, it is God's clear will that all humanity one day will recognize the truth of those words on the screen. So we can celebrate the good things in the world as part of God's general revelation in the lives of others. But for those of us who have had the great privilege of hearing our name called by the risen Savior, we are to bear witness to this truth that one day all will come to know the perfect revelation of God through Jesus Christ. This is my friend Lohan Bibele. He's from Sri Lanka. We did our doctoral work together. And we were roommates uh, during some of our international trips. He is a uh, Pentecostal pastor in Sri Lanka. And this is I've got tons of pictures with me and Lohan. He became a good friend. But this is my favorite one because we were in one of our residencies and we had a group meal um, one night and the program brought in the Lord's Chicken from Chick-fil-A. And (laughs) Lohan from Sri Lanka, PepsiCo is in Sri Lanka. They have a market there. And so he was very familiar with KFC. But I took this picture right after he said he'd eaten like 14 chicken tenders. And I took this picture because he said, I don't understand why you guys would even have KFC after this. I couldn't understand how they were in business in the United States after eating Chick-fil-A. In the last year of our residency together, Lohan and I were rooming um, in a a bunk room with a couple of others in Seoul, South Korea. We were there learning from Korean Christians. And in the the context of a conversation one night about Lohan's home church, we were preparing maybe for the last time to be together as a group 
I was asking him about some things about his church and what some of their plans were. And he talked about a building campaign that they had that was just around the corner. And then he told me a story. He said, you know, interesting thing about our building campaign is that we were ready to build the building about two, three years ago. Our church, our church, which is a 6% Christian population, by the way, in a country that oftentimes is hostile toward them, very religious, Buddhist and Hindu and others, but sometimes hostile toward the Christian faith. He said, we, we have been growing and God had kind of given us a vision for this piece of land that was on another part of town and we needed it because we, we just didn't have enough room and so we were going to build there and we had to save up 140000 some odd dollars to purchase this land so we could build our new church. And after several years of sacrificial giving, we reached the goal and we were ready to pay cash for that property. And the very week that we celebrated in our church, the reaching of this milestone through the faithfulness of God, we learned about a tragedy in our community where a young man who was a husband and a father of young, young children died rather tragically. And in Sri Lanka, depending on what you're born into, you may have hope if you don't have a working spouse or you may not. And the night that we celebrated that we'd reached this milestone, I felt God speak to me very directly and said, Lohan, I want you to take that money and build a house for that woman that new widow. And I said, Lord, why would you have given us the vision to raise this money? We're finally here. He said, Lohan, I want you to go tell your church that I'm telling you. He spoke very directly. And he said, I didn't want to do that. I said, I don't blame you. My church would be like, show us the burning bush where God showed up and told you and gave you this money. He said, but I shared it with my church just honestly, and they agreed. And so we spent about half of the money that we already had in hand to build this home for this woman and for her family. Now, there's another part of the story I'm not going to tell today about how God provided for their church in a very short time to be able to pursue that goal. But, Lohan said, we were able to build the house for her. And I said, that's a really a step of faith, not just in God, but also you as a pastor, because people really could have resisted you or challenged you on that. He said, I know. He said, but what you have to understand is this. This woman was not a Christian. We have a very religious culture in Sri Lanka, so there are lots of good people doing good things. But the one thing I've learned that convinces them of the truth of the gospel is this. When we do something that is self-sacrificial and costs us for a stranger, none of the other religions in my country do that sort of thing. And it wasn't but a few months later that we baptized her as a new believer in our church family. Friends, if we can keep that as the focus of the question, I'm not called to be the judge of anyone. I have to discern what I believe is true and right. But I'm not called to be their judge. My focus is on trying to live faithfully to represent the special self-giving love of God through Jesus Christ in the world. And I believe that's the calling for all of us in His church. Let's pray. God, for all of us who at one season of faith or another will wrestle with difficult questions, may we turn not just to the answers that we might receive from our culture, May we not just turn to the ponderings of our own heart. May we turn to your word to provide revelation to us.
And as we read your word, may we see that you have anticipated the questions in the human heart and you respond to them with a great hope. We pray, O oh God, that the church at Rossbridge would be the kind of church that can recognize and celebrate and embrace the good that happens outside of our faith tradition. But that we would, by your grace and with your spirit, with humility, bear witness to the truth and grace of Jesus Christ, that all the world may be drawn to proclaim him as Lord. It's in his name we pray. Amen. The church at Ross Bridge is located in Birmingham, Alabama, and helps people find abundant life in Jesus Christ.